Hello and welcome. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns with the WPFW News Team. This is Friday Evening Fireside, a long-form version of our Monday morning news program. We're bringing you three extended interviews from this Monday. As always, our intention is to preserve the discursive nature of our work and share that process with our listeners. In this edition of Friday Evening Fireside, I talk with writer and activist Phyllis Bennis about hopeful developments in diplomatic efforts with Iran. WPFW News Director Askia Mohammed asks journalist John Nichols why last week's impeachment arguments made for the most compelling Senate trial in history. And first on tonight's program, reporter Amara Evering speaks with Guerlene Joseph, executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance and the Black Immigrants Bail Fund. They discuss the contrast between a promise of the new Biden administration to halt deportations and a reality of continued deportations, particularly to politically unstable Haiti. In late January, Biden issued an executive order suspending deportations, as you know. But have deportations, in fact, been suspended since then? What is the case for Haitian immigrants in terms of deportations that have happened in the past few weeks? Uh, Thank you so much for having us. Uh, And uh, the reality is um, that that moratorium um, was lacking, right? Uh, It did not provide protection for what they call Title 42 expulsions, which is people who are arriving at the border asking for asylum, and they are immediately taken and expelled without access to the process, without giving a chance to claim, uh, um, you know, their their asylum, without even uh, taking the time to really understand what is happening. And we see that Title 42 has been used as an excuse so that they can continue the deportation. Um, And now we're looking at quote unquote regular deportation that has been going on. Uh, The moratorium should have provided some type of reprieve, um, you know, against those deportations. However, um, as a response to um, to the temporary restraining order from Texas, we saw as soon as that happened, then I started deporting people both under Title 42 expulsion, as they call it, and regular deportations uh, 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 to, to, to not only Haiti, but, but places such as Jamaica and, 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 uh, and, and Cameroon and all over the place. We saw that they used this, this, this unfortunate uh, TRO from Texas to deport people. However, the reality is, even with the temporary restricting order, it doesn't say deportation must resume. It says that they, 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 they have putting a temporary uh, stop on the moratorium. So the, the choice to actually beefed up deportation, deporting as many people as possible, is a choice that they made consciously to make sure that they create and, 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 and create more harms to the most impacted and most vulnerable uh, communities. And I think something shocking that I read 
is that they are deporting people who are very young and families as well. Can you speak a little bit about that? Um, yes. So from what we are seeing, uh, for example, yesterday, they had three deportation flights to Haiti. And keep in mind that those flights are being paid by with our taxpayer money. Instead of using that money to process people in and for good, and receive them in a humane and with dignity. We are using the taxpayer money during COVID-19 to, 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 to continue that whole inhuman evil system that has always been part of this of, of our of our lives. Um, so with that being said, it, it is that we see infant as young as two months old and 36 week pregnant women, we see children who are in the prime of development, development prime at six, at eight, at 10, at 14 years old, the trauma that will create. As a mother, my daughter is 10. So I understand the psychological effect, the trauma that will continue with each and every one of those children who have experienced this school and inhuman treatment. So, so it is unacceptable for us as a country, for us as a people, and for the administration during Black History Month, the first thing they did on February 1st, the very first hours of the month of the day was chaining black people and deport them to Haiti in the middle of a major political uprising. The entire country is locked except for deportation. And as you, you said, people are coming to a country that's in the midst of a political crisis right now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what is going on in Haiti and why it is dangerous to deport people and it's dangerous for Haiti to accept people at this moment. Definitely, it is very irresponsible for, for the Haitian government uh, to be accepting and or receiving uh, deportations right now, understanding that uh, um, the Haitian uh, 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 you know, people, including many in the diaspora, are standing on the constitution that states that the term of the current president has expired as of uh, February 7th, 2021, this past Sunday. However, the president is stating that he is not leaving power because he believes that he has another year left. Uh, so because of that, we have a very volatile situation on the ground where people are protesting, manifesting, burning, it is a complete chaos to the point where the president is arresting anybody who is speaking against 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 him and in his view and his stand, um, you know, in the country. So not only we shouldn't be deporting people, period, but to be deporting people in a country that is literally burning up is unacceptable. So our question is, what is going on? Why will Haiti be accepting people during this time? What is the benefit of that to the Haitian government? 
And then how can the United States be deporting people to that state? To, to be de deporting people into this danger. And the majority of these people have fled for their lives in returning them to the same danger they have fled from after literally barely survived to come to ask for asylum uh, um, you know, in this, in this great United States of ours. And it's a little ironic, you know, we're sending people to a, a country that's having a crisis with their election when we just had a crisis with our own election. It's very um, hypocritical. I don't know if you want to speak on that at all. Or... Oh, yes, most definitely. I, you know, not speaking on behalf of the organization, but as, a, as an American citizen, as a Haitian American uh, Black woman, who have experienced both of those, of those situations, who understand very clearly how things are happening in Haiti and what's happening on, on the ground and seeing um, you know, the, the United States continued uh, 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 racism and anti-Blackness uh, uh, of, of people uh, of African descent. And that include those of us who are, uh, um, who are you know, descendants of slaves and those of us who are immigrated, I myself, I am both, right? As a Haitian, I am a descendant of slaves and I am a black immigrant in the United States. So we understand as black people, uh, you know, citizenship papers does not protect us in those black skin that we are in. So we understand that the state of Haiti is directly related to the West, right? To the fact that uh, 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 the continued corruption, the continued quote unquote, uh, 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 you know, state of, of, of underdevelopment is directly connected with all of those system because if, if we can be free, therefore that's a problem. So as a, a Haitian American citizen, as a black immigrant, as a black woman, I cannot remove my citizenship, my, my immigration status from my blackness as a as you know a black woman in the in the United States. So we see the parallel, we see the fear, and we clearly understand where we are. And just kind of going off of that, in a video about systematic racism in our immigration system, when it comes to black immigrants, um, Joyce Louis Jean said, quote, every single aspect of the immigration system is nasty but it's especially nasty if you're black. Do you agree with this statement? And if so, how are Haitian immigrants especially mistreated within our already nasty um, US immigration system? Mm -hmm. You know what? The reality is Haitian immigrants has always been targeted and the immigration system as we know it, the prison immigration system as we know it started with black immigrants from Haiti, refugees, that were es escaping the Duvalier uh, uh, regime at the time that, you know, along with the Cubans that were, that were escaping uh, 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 Fidel Castro. And we saw how they received, right, the lighter skin, the fairer skin Cubans and how they treated the, 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 the darker skin, the black uh, uh, Haitians, putting them in Guantanamo Bay, using their body as a, as a catalyst to create the immigration prison system as we know it. 
So, so the Haitian, uh, 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 the, the Haitian migrant, the Haitian refugees, the Haitian immigrants have always been a target and continue to be, even, even when Haitians have always been a part of the fabric of this country. If you wanna go back to, 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 to the Revolutionary War, if you wanna go back to the Savannah battle, you will see that the blood of Haitian soldiers, the lives were lost, the blood are seeped in the fabric of this country. Yet, because we are black, because of what we represent, we continue to be targeted. We continue to, they continue to use this racist anti-blackness and inhuman practice on our bodies. And so what are some of the specific stories that you've come across in your organization? What are the specific things people might be leaving? Do they have a hard journey? And how is their life when they get here? I know this a lot, so you don't have to address everything. Do you know the stories of, of people who were recently deported? Yes. We, we have had so many um, heartbreaking stories. Um, I can tell you that my team and, and our colleagues, such as uh, uh, Patrice Lawrence, uh, who is the director of Undoctor Black, we literally haven't slept. You know, uh, it would be two o'clock when we receive a call from a family member who cannot find their loved ones or somebody who just got deported or somebody who is in detention. Um, it is nonstop. The stories are horrific. Um, so I can share with you how people have made their way to the United States to come to ask for asylum. I can share with you that the majority of the people were survivors of the earthquake that killed over 250,000 people in one day, January 12, uh, uh, 2010. Who those people were left, uh, uh, you know, completely broken, they lost family members, they lost their homes, they lost everything. And as part of humanitarian program, a lot of them went to Brazil uh, and then they were there, they provided manual labor, they were very uh, you know, instrumental in, in, in uh, providing labor for the World Cup, the Olympics and all of that that was happening in Brazil at the time. Um, and unfortunately, the economy of Brazil collapsed, the political turmoil uh, in Brazil also forced them to leave Brazil in 2015. They started making their way north, not really knowing where they will end up, but they were searching for, for a place to call home after losing their home, going to a foreign land, being unwanted, being pushed out, now trying to see what's next. We saw that people crossed the entire South and Central America, the entire one, on foot. The majority of them suffered horrific abuse on the way. A lot of them die on the way. They go to the waters, to the jungle, to the mountain in Colombia, in Panama, in Nicaragua. They literally walked average five to six months, including carrying children, including carrying babies, those who survive to come and ask for asylum. That is the reality of the journey that they make. Now we're looking at people from Cameroon who are fleeing armed conflict and making their way to, um, to, South, to South Central America, then continue the same journey 
along with the Haitians and, uh, um, you know, the Congolese and all of those people, the folks from Bangladesh and really all from around the world, trying to find a way to survive. And we also understand, you know, from the people we have been fortunate enough to work with or in immigration detention centers, how they are being treated. The fact that black immigrants in immigration detention centers do not have access to, to legal representation. And then realizing that they get the highest bond in, you know, so for example, for people to be released, you have to pay a bond for them. And the black immigrants, because they don't have uh, legal representation, they do not understand uh, the immigration system. They are left alone, forgotten, silenced. In turn, the judge gives them a $50,000 bond. So that is why the Haitian Bridge Alliance with our partner Abisa in Michigan started the Black Immigrants Bail Fund because nobody wanted or nobody were able to really pay for bond more than $10,000. And we understand the restraint on all those organizations because when you present them a bond for 20, 30, 40, 50,000, but their cap is $10,000, they cannot answer to that demand. So we had to find a way because we couldn't sleep at night because somebody had a $30,000 bond. There was no way to raise that money for them. And by the time you are able to get half of that, it is too late and they deport that person. So we had to create a vehicle to be able to enter to the needs of Black immigrants. Um, so when they get deported, then they call. You know, in Haiti, there's absolutely no provision for people who have been deported. As a matter of fact, if you are deported, you are considered the law of the law. You are unwanted, Right. And that is, the, that is the bias, again, that is created for those people who have been deported. The idea is they have committed a crime, even though they have not done anything wrong, and then they are being deported or expelled under those conditions. There's nothing waiting for them. And then they are reaching out, asking for assistance because the governments are not, are not supporting them. There are no organizations to receive and provide for them. And in Cameroon, upon, 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 uh, upon return, they are being detained, imprisoned, and sometimes completely disappear. So these are the realities that we are allowing the system, the government administration to continue to inflict arms and, 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 and ill, uh, uh, um, to inflict arms you know, uh, uh, on, on, on Black immigrants specifically. And just as a last question, um, actually, sorry, second to last question. Sorry about that. Um, I know that you posted a picture on your Twitter that said, quote, our existence is our resistance. What does this mean to you in this moment? In this moment is really calling on the strength of our ancestors. Um, because as I mentioned, we should not be in existence. Um, when, when we think of Haiti, the first Black Republic, we were not given freedom. We took freedom. We fought for freedom. We created our identity. We created our existence. 
And our very existence is unacceptable to the West. Understanding this great United States of ours as the first country in the Americas, Haiti is literally the second. So we have the United States and Haiti as free country in these Americas. Yet the United States refused to recognize Haiti as a free country, agreed with France to force Haiti to pay them for lost, for lost a revenue because they could no longer treat us as animal and as property to make money off of us. So every single dime that was in Haiti were forced to pay to France and agreed by all the countries of the West to make sure that we do not exist. So that is why our existence is our resistance and our resistance is fueled by our existence to fight for freedom for all people, to continue to lead in the liberation, freedom, and, and, and protection of all people, but specifically Black people around the world. So Haiti itself is an anomaly. It should not have existed. So we will continue to see those treatments abroad and in country. We will continue to see the West, the international powers, making sure that Haiti does not, does not prosper. Because for Haiti to prosper is for Black people to prosper. Well, so what are you, you personally in your organization, what are you demanding from this new administration? We are demanding um, that once and for all, those treatments, anti-Blackness and racism is, uh, is uprooted in our, in, in our system. We are currently asking and demanding that they stop all deportation that they stop using Title 42 as a pretext because what's happening is people are being trapped in Title 42 because they have no other options. Haitians and other black migrants have been waiting at the border for the past four or five years. They can wait for another two or three months. If there is a clear pathway, a clear plan, a clear system for them to follow, they don't have it right now. So they are being preyed upon by the smugglers, by the cartel, by other bad actors in Mexico and across the Americas, forcing them to fall into the trap of Title 42. It is unacceptable. So we are asking the government to be better, to build better, because we have nothing to go back to. We can only ask, we can only demand, and we can only make sure that we hold them accountable to that reality. So we are asking for them to stop all deportation, all expulsion, provide pathways to citizenship for TPS in DACA, to provide protections for Cameroon, Mauritania, Bahamas, and others. Thank you so much for just speaking with me. And just as a last note, um, you know, even a lot of my family migrated from Jamaica. And, um, you know, when you fight for 
your people, you fight for all of us. So just thank you. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, my, my colleague and, and partner in the struggle, um, uh, Patrice Lawrence, is from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And the reality of our people from the Caribbean and, and of course, throughout Southern Central America as, as descendants of, of slave and descendants, uh, uh, Af- Afro descendants, is that, is that we just happen to, to end up in different parts. But when we look at, at, at places such as Haiti and Cuba and Jamaica within the Caribbean, mm-hmm. we, don't, we are not two different people. We are the same people being moved. If you know the history, right, of, of Haiti and Jamaica and all of those places, if you misbehave in Jamaica, the, the, the British or, or the Spanish sells you or exchange you, you yeah. know, to people in, in, in another in, island, such as Haiti, understanding that Bookman was transported from Jamaica to Haiti. We are the same people. Our stories are the same. Our, our food, our uh, mannerism, our dance, our understanding. Uh, we might, the only thing is, 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 is the remnants of who we were colonized by and how we were treated by those people. But when we go into ourselves, into our real selves, we are one. And so that is why the one love the Ampilme Shaipalu, those sentiments are, are in my heart, in my being. And, and, and so thank you so much. And that is one thing due to, I want to make sure people understand the, the divide and conquer that's mm-hmm. been happening within our people, even within the Caribbean diaspora, how we are being separated and, 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 and all of this instead of coming together as the power that we are. Once we are, once we stop allowing outside forces to come between us, then we will see will change. Thank you so much. That's such a uplifting thing to end this interview on. Can you um, say your name and your title um, and any last words? My name is Gerlin Joseph. I am uh, the co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Wood Alliance and the Black Immigrants Bell Fund. Um, as we say in Haiti, which means many hands make the lot lighter. We are asking for our communities to come together to fight against racism, against anti-Blackness, to make sure that our people are protected understanding that those deportations are not only happening to Haiti, they are also happening to Jamaica, to the Dominican Republic, to Trinidad and Tobago. We are all in this together. So understanding unless we are all free, none of us are free. We are asking for the administration to stop those deportations because even as we have a vice president, which, which, which is amazing, a first black woman vice president, whose father is Jamaican, we still have to drop up and down saying immigration is a black issue because when they speak of immigration, we don't exist. We are erased. We are silenced, right? So we have to continue to uplift the voices of Black immigrants because we are here and we are here to stay. Thank you so much. That made me smile. Um, Thank you so much.
I would love to connect you with Patrice. I don't know if you've spoken with her before. No, I haven't. I would, I would love to, actually. Yes, I'll connect with Patrice. She's amazing. Oh, of course. Thank you so much. Patrice is in D.C. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I would love, I would love to, well, yeah. it's a little dangerous out here, but, you know, I would, <laughs> I would love look, to be here. Look, she makes, she makes beef patties. Oh. And uh, and she actually made me a warm cake, mm-hmm. and she she mailed it to me mm-hmm. uh, for <laughs> for New Year. But it was super. I literally got drunk from that from that from that warm cake. <laughs> See, I don't know why we do that. We send. It's like every year you send a rum cake. We make actually we make rum cakes too. Um, yeah. So I would I would love to. Had, try some of her food because I made jerk chicken. I made some chicken foot soup, which people are like, "Ew!" Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> but I would, I would love to meet her. I would love to meet her. Well, I will connect you with Patrice, and then when I come to DC, mm-hmm. I am expecting some chicken foot soup. You, you want some? Okay. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll make some. I'll make some. Most people are like, you know, they don't, they think it's a little nasty. Right? I, I, not that I want some, I need some. <laughs> I, need, I need my strength. I need my strength to be renewed. <laughs> I'll make some. I'll make some for you. That was Guerlain Joseph executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance and the Black Immigrants Bail Fund, in conversation with reporter Amara Everine. Don't forget, you can follow our news team on Twitter at WPFWMMQB or follow the station itself at WPFWDC. Visit WPFW.org to listen live and to become a sustainer of listener-supported radio in the nation's capital. Next up, news director and Monday Morning QB host Askia Muhammad talks with John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for The Nation, about last week's impeachment hearing. This conversation was recorded prior to the vote acquitting Donald Trump of incitement, but that eventual acquittal was correctly presumed. So, um, Donald J. Trump will likely not be convicted uh, for the second time. What does that mean? Well, you sum it up well. Uh, It it is indeed unlikely that the president will be convicted of the high crimes and misdemeanors with which he has been charged. Um, This is a far more important uh, impeachment trial than the first that Donald Trump faced. In fact, I would argue this is the most important impeachment trial in the history of the country because it goes right to the heart of why the impeachment power exists, and that is to prevent a president from abusing his position in ways that might allow him to remain as president when the people don't want him, uh, effectively making him king, a monarch, uh, exactly what what, uh, the drafters of the Constitution hope to avoid. So uh, if he is not convicted, as uh, the lead impeachment manager, Jamie Raskin, argued uh, on Thursday, 
that's a it, it sends a terrible signal. It sends a bad signal as regards accountability in this country, especially accountability for the elites and for the powerful. It also sends a, a very bad signal to Donald Trump himself because it says he can get away with things, even even things uh, as egregious as what happened on January 6th, an event in which he incited rioting that left people dead, caused uh, tremendous damage, injured tremendous number of folks, uh, and you know, halted the operations of government, at least for a time. And again, as Raskin suggests, this is something uh, that could come back to haunt us in, in very short order. Because if you tell Donald Trump he can get away with stuff like this, uh, there is indeed the possibility that uh, he will continue to do it. You wrote a foreword to an impeachment book in 2018, almost three years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. Have we not learned anything in that period of time? And, and what were you thinking then? <laughs> well, my friend, uh, I think I, I will dare say I expect you've learned a good deal. I expect that your wonderful listeners have learned a good deal. Um, I hope I've learned a bit along the way. Uh, the problem is that as a country, as a country, we still resist accountability. And it's easy to blame the Republicans who will align with Trump, and they're going to do that. There's, there's no doubt of that, um, or at least there's little doubt of it. But we should also understand that, that this goes deeper. We are, we live in a country, uh, that is characterized by economic, social, and racial injustice. And, uh, that injustice, uh, it takes many forms. Obviously deprivation and, um, you know, unfair policies, unfair treatment of people. But one of the forms that it takes is a sort of get out of jail free card for, uh, our most powerful people, for the elites. Uh, the impeachment power exists to say that no one, not even the president of the United States, uh, should be above the law, should be above accountability. And uh, uh, we, we should understand that. But clearly, as a country, we have not learned that. Uh, we have not learned it as deeply or as well as we should. That doesn't mean that you give up. I don't think any of us give up. But it does mean that uh, after so compelling a case for the conviction of Donald Trump, and remember, uh, what Jamie Raskin, Stacey Plaskett, uh, Joe Neguse, um, you know, looking Castro, uh, all of these people presented uh, or have presented so far. I mean, this is it's, it's a truly, truly powerful case for the conviction of this man. It's, it, it, to my mind, it's in these written books about impeachment. I think it's the most powerful case ever made and, and the most effectively made case. That should mean something. Uh, and it is truly sad, truly disappointing that it may not. Now, some of the jurors, as it were, senators who are hearing and will decide on whether or not Trump is convicted, actually met with his defense team uh, yesterday uh, or Thursday. Doesn't that amount to him being judged by a jury of his accomplices? Yes, it does. Um, And even before they met, um, they were accomplices. This is the important thing to understand. Uh, There is little question that Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri was as guilty as Donald Trump of inciting what happened 
on January 6th. Now, Hawley's not as prominent as Trump, so it, it is fair to say that Trump had a, a much bigger role in calling the crowd to Washington. But remember, it was Hawley who said he would object as a senator to the counting of the electoral votes. That was what made January 6th possible. If there wasn't a senator joining House members and objecting, you would not have had um, the that critical juncture, that pivot point. And so Hawley's clearly an accomplice. I think Ted Cruz counts as one, too. He's been you know, very over the top in this regard. Ron Johnson, a uh, senator from Wisconsin who held a hearing of a key a Senate committee in which they aired, you know, complete lies and conspiracy theories. Um, Lindsey Graham, who, uh, as chair of the Judiciary Committee at the time that the attack occurred, and, you know, is certainly one of the more prominent Republicans has, has acted in reprehensible ways. And so you've got a lot of people who even without, uh, a meeting, this, this alleged meeting with the, uh, defense team, uh, could be seen as accomplices. The idea that senators who are jurors in this trial would meet with the defense team and seek to give its guidance for how to prevail in the trial is it's appalling. And uh, it ought to lead to ethics charges, an effort to censure, perhaps even to expel these senators. Again, uh, I'm very frustrated by, by the way the Senate operates, and I, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that uh, the Senate is likely to throw the book at these guys for what they're accused of doing. But in in the best of all worlds, that's what would happen. What good is Donald Trump? And let me exaggerate, <laughs> or not exaggerate, but just enumerate. I mean, he's a draft dodger, a, a, a serial, um, uh, been accused of serial sexual assaults. Uh, he's an inveterate liar. Um, he has multiple bankruptcies, and he's a flawed vessel, and yet people still um, rally to him. I mean, what good is he to his, not to, obviously it's clear what, he's, what good he is to Donald Trump, but what good is he to his base, to, to the lower downs? Uh, is he some sort of uh, Rasputin in the body of Nick, Tsar Nicholas? I mean, what, you know, what gives? Oh, what a good question. Uh, look, uh, Donald Trump, about five years ago, maybe even a little longer, recognized the vulnerability of the Republican Party. The Republican Party has, uh, in recent decades, given up on trying to be a popular party that speaks to the great mass of Americans. It is a, a vehicle primarily interested in you know, lowering taxes for its wealthy campaign donors and uh, protecting corporate interests. That's that's what the elites of the Republican Party are all about. Um, but to win elections, they have to energize a base of voters that is animated by a series of social conservative political stances and, in some cases, uh, racist and xenophobic appeals. And Donald Trump recognized that he could step into this party and, and amplify uh, the racist and xenophobic appeals, uh, amplify basically some of the most cynical and, and darkest uh, aspects of the party and push aside the, the traditional elites of the party that he can make them different to him. And uh, at this point he is 
the Republican who uh, is most capable of rallying the most Republican votes. Now, that didn't work in November. He lost the election. But at this point, this is why presumably 44 or more Republican senators are likely to vote not to convict him when they know he is guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors. It is purely politics. It is an ugly, dangerous politics that is rooted in the understanding of the Republican Party that it can only, the elites of the Republican Party, that their party can only be a a serious political player if they um, go to very dark, very dangerous places politically. And uh, Trump will continue to exploit that if he is not convicted. You've written that Jamie Raskin and his passionate prosecution uh, is convicting Trump in the eyes of history. I would wonder, looking at other exonerated, most people would agree, guilty parties, O.J. Simpson, for example, Mm -hmm. and in particular, uh, most particular, Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam, who were acquitted of murdering Emmett Till after only one hour of deliberation, how have those um, criminals been held to account by history? History, well, we're talking about, um, you're, you're expanding the, the frame in, in, a, in a very wise and very notable way. Um, and, and I think that there are sort of two streams. One is uh, history is kind of catching up with a lot of folks now. And, and especially with, it, it took a long time, but uh, with sympathizers with the Confederacy, the arch segregationists, the, the most brutal uh, racists of, of, you know, this long American history. And so we are seeing, you know, some historical reckoning and that's, that's consequential. Uh, when I was writing about the particular case of Donald Trump, I was thinking a little more of political history and, and of, you know, how uh, in the relatively short term and the longer term, we look at former presidents and we look at, you know, powerful political figures. And I do believe that what was very effective in Jamie Raskin's prosecution, uh, as well as that of the rest of the team, and I really, you know, have to note that uh, Delegate Stacey Pusquet from the Virgin Islands and a few others were just strikingly effective in uh, detailing the high crimes and misdemeanors, the, the, the horrible wrongs in which Donald Trump engaged. And, and I am enough of a believer in humanity uh, to think that, A, in the relatively short term, that does have some impact. I think it, it does. Remember, Trump lost the election, uh, and it will make it harder for him to come back. Uh, but, B, in the longer term, if we look at this historically, it's very, very important that uh, we look back on this time and say, well, there were people who, who understood, who, who recognized what was right and wrong. And that has consequences uh, because it tells us something about the Republican party in this period. And if the Republican party does not change, I would dare say, I think we'll have a very hard time surviving long into a future uh, in which this country is becoming dramatically more diverse uh, and which a rising young generation is dramatically more concerned uh, by all polling data and and anecdotal evidence uh, about the sort of uh, disdain or democracy that Donald Trump has displayed. Harvard law professor Lawrence Tribe calls Jamie Raskin 
probably the best constitutional lawyer in all of Congress. What's so special about him? Jamie Raskin comes from a, a long, long history of people who've been deeply concerned about economic and social and racial justice. Um, his uh, grandparents and his great uncles and that were, uh, ra- I dare say, I hope it's appropriate, radical political activists in the 1930s. His um, father, Marcus Raskin, who was a Kennedy administration aide and then became uh, one of the founders of the Institute for Policy Studies, in uh, a great civil rights and anti-war activist in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, uh, really set set a standard for this guy. And he came up as a, a student of constitutional law. He was a brilliant student at Harvard and then became a, a law professor uh, and at American University, one of the one of the most distinguished law professors of his time, a great author on these issues. And he has always focused always focused a lot of attention on presidential accountability and these core justice issues, these fundamental questions of how we uh, apply the law to the elite. And so um, he is a unique figure. It, it's, I would dare say if you had asked me, you know, name the 10 people, not the one, but the, the 10 people uh, who might be the most effective uh, prosecutor of Donald Trump in a circumstance like this, I would have had, I would have always put Jamie Raskin's name on that list. Now, having seen how he has approached this challenge and and how respectful he has been of the process, and also frankly how respectful he's been of his team and how he's uh, lifted the rest of rest of the members of this impeachment team up and allowed them to show their brilliance. Um, he's, I, I do think he's the right man at the right point in history, even if he does not succeed. And remember, a failure in impeachment, a failure to convict uh, can be frustrating. It can be disappointing. But we should also understand this country has never convicted a president who was charged with high crimes and misdemeanors. So unfortunately, we are seeing uh, a long history potentially very likely repeat. Well, is there anything that can be done now after this uh uh, failure to convict, which is not an exoneration, but is there anything else that can be done to sure. punish him or get at him? Yep. Um, we see the state of Georgia or a prosecutor in Georgia, district attorney already uh, looking at uh, the president's former president's uh, efforts to influence the county votes in Georgia uh, in the election he lost. Um, we see the ongoing efforts of Tish James, the brilliant attorney general in New York state to hold president Trump or former president Trump to account for actions, uh, lawless actions he engaged in, uh, before his presidency. We see the efforts of the Manhattan district attorney's office, uh, potentially the, uh, U.S. attorney's office for the Southern district of New York, uh, to pursue accountability measures. I think you'll see others. So I don't think Donald Trump's, uh, jeopardy, if you will is is ended by this. I would also, frankly, love to see uh, D.C. officials go after him because he did his greatest harm, or at least some of his greatest harm, in the District of Columbia. And I think there are, there are potentially appropriate measures and actions there. I would also say that the accomplices of Donald Trump need to be held to account. And that's the interesting thing, because whether Donald Trump ever runs for office again, uh, the senators who are expected, not certain, but expected uh, to vote to acquit him, 
uh, they will face the voters. Many of them will face the voters. And this ought to be a part of what is considered when they are at their next elections, because the truth of the matter is anyone who voted to acquit Donald Trump or who votes to acquit Donald Trump will do so not as a representative of the people, but as a a robotic partisan uh, who cannot be counted on to do the right thing in any circumstance, not just in an impeachment trial, but in any circumstance. John Nichols, columnist for The Nation magazine. Thank you for talking with us. It's been a great honor to talk with you, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. We end the program this week on a both hopeful and cautionary note. President Joe Biden, at the end of January, tapped diplomat Robert Malley to lead administration talks with Iran, centered around returning to the landmark 2015 nuclear deal, from which Donald Trump withdrew the United States in 2018. The appointment of Malley, who had worked in the Obama administration to negotiate the original deal, signals a willingness to engage diplomatically with Iran, but it doesn't guarantee an easy path forward. I spoke with Phyllis Bennis, director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, to learn more. A quick editorial note first. I refer to the, quote, re-election of current Iranian President Hassan Rouhani at several points during this conversation. To be clear, Rouhani is term-limited and is not running for re-election this summer. However, his brand of moderate politics certainly is on the ballot. So I wanted to ask first about Iranian domestic politics. You know, President Hassan Rouhani is up for re-election in mid-June and seems to be facing substantial conservative hardline opposition. So to start, can you discuss what role the JCPOA plays in Iranian domestic politics and how a return to the deal or not might impact the presidential election this summer? The Iranian elections that are set for June of this year pose a kind of deadline in a sense for how the US is going to deal under the new Biden administration with getting back into the Iran nuclear deal known as the JCPOA. The the issue is that when the deal was first signed back in 2015 under President Obama, there was a promise made. The promise was that in return for paring down its nuclear power projects and giving up any Uh, future plans to ever have a nuclear weapon, which of course Iran doesn't have, and US intelligence agencies agree it never even decided it wanted one, but nonetheless, it's been uh, accused of it many times, Uh, that in return for giving up all of that, the Iranians would have an immediate benefit in their lives and that they would have sanctions that would be lifted, both the international sanctions that the UN agreed to and the US unilateral sanctions would all be lifted, and that life would become far more normal for Iranians that had really suffered under these broad-based sanctions. The problem was it never really happened. The US did not lift all the sanctions. It lifted some and the United Nations lifted some, but because of the the expansive nature of the US economy, because the US economy is so big and the role of the dollar in the international economy, 
those unilateral sanctions that should have only been about US trade with Iran ended up having really global impact so that companies all over the world became afraid to engage with Iran, to sell stuff to Iran or whatever, fearing that the US was going to reimpose sanctions and that they would be caught up in it, even if somebody in Washington says, well, the sanctions don't really apply for food and medicine. We have humanitarian exemptions. And that may have been technically true, but it had no impact because in the real world, countries and companies are simply too worried about getting on the wrong side of the US to take that kind of a risk. So in 2018, when then President Trump left the nuclear deal and immediately cracked down with a whole set of new sanctions, making everything far worse than it had been even under the earlier sanctions, people were really, really hurting in Iran. And the call came out, what did we do? What, you know, why, why aren't we getting any of these benefits we were promised from having been in the, in the nuclear deal? And it was Rouhani's faction, if you will, in the Iranian political scene who had been the great supporters of going into the deal, of dealing with what many in Iran call the great Satan. And so in the context of the return to even more crippling sanctions that have led particularly during the context of the pandemic to huge numbers of people dying because they can't get enough medicines, they don't get uh, cancer drugs, they can't get the equipment they need for chemotherapy. All of these things have led to people dying. And for the first time in modern Iranian history, children have died of malnutrition. It's, it's stunning for a modern country. And it's not, thankfully, it's not a lot, but any child dying of malnutrition in what has been a modern wealthy country is shocking, absolutely shocking for Iranians. And so the notion that there's now going to be an effort to bring Iran back into negotiations with the US, that the US says, well, we wanna come back now, it's going to be very tough. It's gonna to play a major role because the, the so-called hardliners, which is not really a very accurate description, but it's the description that's common in the United States, those who are more skeptical about dealing with the US under any circumstances, they're going to have a better shot this time around because they're gonna be able to point to the suffering of Iranians in the last four years. And while people in the Biden administration may say, well, you know, this is, those, were, those were Trump sanctions, this is different. For the Iranians, these are American sanctions. And so it's gonna be a very tough row for those in Iran who want to try again who want to give it another try with the Biden administration, who want to come back into negotiations, renegotiate the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, it's, it's gonna be hard for them to persuade people when the times come to vote that their position is right. So it's gonna play a huge role in the, in the uh, Iranian elections. And it seems we're at something of a stalemate right now where Iran says the United States must first eliminate sanctions before it returns to enrichment levels under the JCPOA. In turn, the U.S. says Iran needs to walk back enrichment levels before it provides sanctions relief. So are we going to have to wait for one side to blink first? Or is it possible to negotiate some sort of incremental, mutual, you know, concurrent sanctions and enrichment reduction? I think the answer is yes. Either of those things could happen. Um, ideally, there will be enough realism and recognition in the new 
Biden administration in the new State Department to say, you know, it was our side who walked away from the deal. It was the US who left the deal. Iran didn't. Iran stuck in the deal. And for the first two years or more, was working hard with the Europeans in particular, among the other signatories in, uh, in the deal. The Europeans were trying very hard to compensate the Iranians somehow for what they were losing when the US left the deal and reimposed these crippling sanctions. Ultimately, the Europeans were never able to do it. So at a certain point, a couple of years in, the Iranians began very slowly and carefully in a calibrated way to return to some of their earlier enrichment. Uh, they, they were moving away from the requirements of the deal. They made clear from the moment they began that process to say, this is temporary. These actions can be reversed in a minute. And we are prepared to reverse it if the US would come back into the deal on its own terms. So it's not really an equal debate here. The problem is of course, on the question of power, it's also not equal, it's the opposite way. Iran has very little power in this equation, the US has all the cards. One can hope again that the new administration will take a bold step and say, the US was wrong and whatever administration did it, our country, our government was wrong to walk away from this deal. We want other things as well. We wanna negotiate a grand bargain with Iran that covers other things. That's all fine, but that can't happen until we go back to the existing deal. So hopefully that's how it will play out. There are some, some reasons for optimism in the new staff that there are some people there who understand some of these questions about what the needs are of the Iranians in terms of their own political uh, reality. I think people in this country tend to often, too often, uh, see Iran as a place where the ordinary push and pull of, of domestic politics doesn't apply, that whatever the, the uh, Iranian leader says goes and nobody else says anything. It's a very vibrant uh, political system and they have to campaign to win elections. So it's, a, it's going to play a very important role there. Turning to, to Biden's staff here, particularly the new Iranian special envoy, Robert Malley. I mean, Malley's long been an object of right-wing fear-mongering about you know, radical ties to Hamas or apathy towards Iranian human rights abuses. Can you briefly discuss Malley's actual record on, on some of these questions that the right-wing likes to smear him about? And, and maybe discuss secondarily what this says about right-wing attitudes towards Iran and the Middle East? Well, on the second question first, I think that it's important to recognize that this is not just a right-wing problem. Uh, when President Obama was trying to mobilize support in Congress for the, for the Iran nuclear deal, he had tons of problems with Democrats. You know, this is not just like a partisan issue between uh, only the Republicans, and it's not just the right-wing. There's been a, not a complete consensus, thankfully, but something too close to a consensus in Washington among elite forces, both in government, in think tanks, in the Pentagon, that Iran is somehow uh, this major enemy, a major danger. And this goes back, I mean, we will trace all the history, but it goes back to the time for the Iranians of the 1953 coup that was led by the US and Britain that overthrew an elected, democratically elected government and replaced them with the first of the, the US-backed Shah of Iran. For the US side, that antagonism didn't start there. The, the US thought they did a great thing. 
It started in 1979 at the time of the Islamic Revolution when the Shah, that US-backed government, was overthrown and replaced with a, a religiously-based government that was no friend of, of Washington's policies in the region. And since that time, and particularly since the, uh, the, the, um, the question of the hostages, the US diplomats who were held hostage for a little over a year in Iran during the context of the revolution, uh, the antagonism towards Iran it gave, it gave rise to a whole new level of Islamophobia across this country. It gave rise to tremendous anti-Arab racism, although Iran is not an Arab country. Uh, and it gave rise to incredible opposition and antagonism towards Iran. So in that context, it's been a very broad sense of antagonism toward, towards Iran. And the question of, of how US officials deal with Iran uh, has been a very antagonistic one. So it's been very, very difficult. Winning support for the Iran nuclear deal in 2015 took an enormous, really wonderful and impressive social movement outside combined with incredible pressure from the White House on these recalcitrant members of Congress, uh, which included among other things, the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was brought to Washington to address a joint session of Congress arranged by the Republicans who spent his time as if he were giving a, uh, a, a, um, a state of the union kind of address. You know, he referred to friends that were sitting in the balcony and he spent that time condemning the president of the United States in the US Capitol. It was such an outrage when he was invited that 60 members of Congress unprecedented number, 60 members of Congress publicly skipped the speech. Most of them members of the Black Caucus of the Congress who were outraged at the level of racism that Netanyahu had shown to President Obama. So this antagonism goes back a long ways and it isn't only uh, the right wing. Now, when you come to the question of Rob Malley's role, Rob Malley is one of these uh, sometimes inside, sometimes outside diplomats. He has both a diplomatic history and a very strong history. These days, he's been the director for many years of the uh, International Crisis Group, which has done really terrific analytical work on potential conflict zones around the world. Uh, but he also was part of the Clinton White House. He was in the National Security Council on the Middle East team that worked with Clinton on the 1999 and 2000 Camp David process that was trying once again to bring a settlement uh, between Israel and, and the Palestinians. And following, he was one of the main organizers of those negotiations. And several months later, when he had left the White House, Rob Malley went public with the, the truth of what had happened. There had been a claim made right after the collapse of the Camp David process that Yasser Arafat was the reason it collapsed, that it was all the Palestinians' fault. And Rob Malley went public and wrote a long article with, you know, explaining exactly what had and had not happened in that process and made very clear that it was not Yasser Arafat that was responsible for the collapse of the accord. As a result of that, he was seen as, you know, public enemy, maybe not number one, but public enemy number seven or eight, perhaps, in the sort of Democratic Party hierarchy around, uh, um, around foreign policy. And later when President Obama was, was uh, first running for office during his campaign. 
Rob Malley was brought in as, a, uh, as an advisor to the campaign, but then there was a huge attack on him that he was pro-Palestinian, that he was anti-Israel, this accusation that he had, quote, met with Hamas, although that was, you know, it was one of those things that that was sort of assumed to be a crime or a sin or some combination of both, when in fact he had held a meeting with a number of Palestinian organizations and leaders, including some from Hamas, while he was in his role at the International Crisis Group. Uh, it had nothing to do with violating some US policy of never talking to Hamas, a policy that should be outlawed anyway if one is serious about diplomacy. <clears throat> but then uh, he came back into the, into the uh, Obama administration in the second term and played a crucial role in negotiating the JCPOA. He was one of the leaders of the team uh, that, that put that together. Wendy Sherman was the, the main uh, diplomatic face of the leadership of it. Rob Malley was one of the, the people who actually made these things happen. And he is one of the most knowledgeable about the situation in the Gulf, in uh, inside Iran, in Saudi Arabia, all of the contending forces within the Gulf uh, and within the Arab world in general that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with in returning to, uh, to the, the uh, JCPOA. And as a result, he's one of the best people they could bring in. Ironically, he, he and a colleague at the International Crisis Group wrote a piece on US complicity in the war in Yemen uh, that just appeared two or three days ago uh, in foreign affairs. It was written before he was brought into the administration. And it's a searing indictment of the US role starting with the Obama administration. And then of course, through the Trump years, uh, he, he speaks in that, uh, in that article, he says that the US quote, ended up becoming complicit in one of the region's most horrific wars. Uh, he, he puts out a, a, a sort of roadmap of what he thinks Biden should do to get out of the, the Yemen war. Many, many of which parts have already been implemented by the Biden administration, which is a good sign that they are uh, taking his advice seriously, including announcing a, a, a freeze or a halt to uh, US military support to Saudi Arabia, uh, reversing, very crucially, reversing the Trump decision to uh, designate the Houthis in, in Yemen as a so-called terrorist organization, uh, a foreign terrorist organization, which would have meant the absolutely catastrophic humanitarian situation in Yemen now to get even worse. So all of this is an indication of Rob Malley's willingness to call it like it is. When, when the US is responsible, uh, it's, he calls it out. And at the end of his article in Foreign Affairs, he says, ending the Yemen war may prove to be beyond the new administration's influence. Ending US complicity in it is not which I thought was a very powerful statement that you very rarely hear from former diplomats, former participants in these processes. It's ironic, you know, Chris, when you, when you hear uh, discussions about, is there going to be a new peace process around Israel-Palestine, the people that are always trotted out onto mainstream media outlets on television, in the press, in the Washington Post and the New York Times and CBS and CNN, they're all people like Aaron David Miller and Dennis Ross, all these people who spent 20, 30 years in failed diplomatic efforts, and they're brought in to say, well, my credential is I was in the, 
I was a diplomat on this issue for 25 years. And I always want to say to them, yeah, and how did that end for you? How'd you do on that one? You know, these are guys who failed consistently. And yet, once again, they're sort of brought out as the experts. Somebody like Rob Malley, who's further in the background, who's not being promoted all the time, actually are the types of people who can play a really crucial role in helping this administration move towards an entirely different position in, in the region. That's a really interesting perspective. Uh, and, and just as an aside, I, I think it might also be true with uh, Biden personnel announcements outside of foreign policy. It seems like he's bringing in some sort of junior level or lieutenant level folks in economic policy that are fairly progressive or, or, or I mean, not sort of mainstream bipartisan consensus. That's absolutely right. And I think we're also seeing it in a very powerful way in the climate arena, in the whole question of the environment, the, the work of the environmental justice movements that have been so powerful in fighting for a Green New Deal and keeping the pressure on the, the Democrats during the campaign, the Biden administration during the transition, and now on the Biden administration itself, you really see the effect of that in some of these appointments to the, the Environmental Protection Agency and in a host of, of ways, the decision to, to bring on a, a two energy czars, one for the, the international side and one on the diplomatic side. One is better than the other. We, it's not necessarily who we would choose, but the idea of bringing on cabinet level appointments to take the question of climate seriously is a very strong uh, indication that the, uh, the, the pressure coming from the climate justice movements is really having an impact. Sure. Uh, turning, turning back to, to Mali and Iran here, it, clearly there's been a lot of pressure instigated in part by Trump and, and continued by uh, others in Congress to push for additional concessions from Iran in trying to return to the JCPOA. And, and as we know, Mali was directly involved in negotiating the JCPOA. And so I wonder, can we understand either through Mali's, uh, uh, you know, Biden's pick of Mali or through other um, statements from the Biden administration, whether Biden truly wants to return to the JCPOA as it was negotiated under Obama or do Biden and Blinken and others want to push for these additional concessions that conservatives and some moderates in the country want? I think this is the debate that's underway right now in the administration. And there are some good signs and some not so good signs. The not so good signs with three of the top appointees to foreign policy positions in the, in the Biden administration during their, uh, during their confirmation hearings three of them, including Blinken, used almost identical language when they said they want to go back to the Iran nuclear deal, but only when Iran comes into compliance and we're a long ways from that. They all added that we're a long ways from that. That was a very bad sign. On the other hand, the appointment of Wendy Sherman as the deputy uh, secretary of state, the second in command of the State Department, was a very good sign. She led the team that negotiated the JCPOA. She knows the Iranian diplomats very well, and she knows well the kinds of pressures they face in having to come back into this deal that for Iranians led to four years of, of uh, terrible economic crisis. Uh, that was a good sign. The appointment of Rob Malley was also a good sign in the sense that it required spending a certain amount of political capital from Biden to get that appointment through. This was not an appointment that requires 
official Senate confirmation, but there was, as you mentioned, an enormous outcry against him uh, from influential Democrats, from influential think tank types. Uh, and he had to be willing to stand up to that and say, you know what, this is who I think can best lead this process. So that was also a good sign. The question of where that comes down, at the end of the day, Rob Malley and, uh, uh, and certainly Wendy Sherman work for Biden. They will be representing what he wants them to represent. And at whatever point, if it ever happens that that becomes unacceptable, they will have to step down rather than uh, lead on, on something that does not reflect what the Biden administration decides on. So they're not gonna have independent uh, uh, power. What they will have is independent influence as two of the people in the, the State Department who know more about the internal situation in Iran and about the region than most others. So that's very important as well. Do you have any closing thoughts either on, you know, additional personnel they might need or uh, maybe, maybe I, yeah, closing thoughts, but also maybe if you can talk about what happens if we don't return to JCPOA before Rouhani's election, re-election in, in the summer, what's, what's sort of a, a best and worst case scenario here? I think that the timing is going to be a significant pressure point for the US. The Iranian elections in June, uh, as we get closer to that, the, the internal politicking, the internal campaigning of two major sides and, and then some other factions as well, uh, are going to be making a key question in the Iran elections, what is the likely impact of going back into the Iran nuclear deal? And if there is, in, if there are indications emerging from Washington throughout this next few months, indicating a seriousness about wanting to go back into a diplomatic approach rather than a warmongering approach, that will help one side. If the indications are that there's skepticism about diplomacy and that the war options are always on the table, that will help a different side. So it will play a major role. I think when we look ahead, what's going to be most important is not the individuals in office in the State Department, even when it's somebody really important in a role like the role that Rob Malley will be playing, none of that will be as important as the role of our movements outside, keeping the pressure on this administration to say, there has got to be a return to the Iran nuclear deal first. Whatever future negotiations we want to raise about other things Iran is doing that we don't like, things that the Iranians want to raise about things that we're doing that they don't like, that's all fine, that comes after. That first, there needs to be a return to the Iran nuclear deal. The Iranians have made clear they're willing to do it. The Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese, all the other signatories to the original deal are waiting for the US to do it. We have got to be the ones to make the first move. And it's going to take enormous outside pressure and mobilization to make that happen. That is Phyllis Bennis, director of the New Internationalism Project at the Institute for Policy Studies and author of Understanding the Iran-U.S. Crisis. That does it for our fourth episode of Friday Evening Fireside. We are taking a break away from the fireside next week, but will return Friday, March 5th. 
Don't miss our regular Monday morning news program at 11 a.m. on WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. This Monday, we take a look at the energy crisis in Texas, potential criminal liability for Donald Trump, next steps in the fight for reparations, and a spate of anti-Asian violence. For WPFW News, this is Chris Bangert-Drowns, signing off.